Welcome to the Vineyard Church Podcast. There's often more to a story than what meets the eye, and when we recall the story of Noah, we think of the ark, some animals, and a rainbow. But what about Noah's story? This week, Myron digs into this story, and we get to see how Noah decided to be different in a culture very much like our own. Here's Myron. Hey everybody, welcome back to our Genesis series, going back to the beginning, the origin, and discovering who we are, who we're made to be, and it's been such a fun journey. We're only on like page six, chapter six of this journey that's going to take like seven years, but it's awesome, and uh, it's been so insightful, and, and last week was a little weird if you were here, so if you missed it, probably good for you. No, go back and listen to that. It was weird, and so today we're talking about uh, maybe the most iconic children's story ever, like Every kid growing up or grew up in the church or went to VBS or even if you just you just know about this guy and it's Noah and the big boat and the ark and the animals and the bird and the rainbow and the olive branch. And it's the story of Noah and the ark. And that's who we're going to talk about. The most iconic kids story probably out of the Bible that we all love. My kids love it. The animals, the zebras, the monkeys. It's such a fun story. But if we're honest and look at this story, it's not really a kid-friendly kind of story. Like we've stripped away all the crazy and all the suffering, all the pain, all the death, God's wrath, his judgment. And we've made it such this symbol of like hope and this fun little children fantasy kind of fictional story. But it's a story filled with more pain, more headache, more suffering, more hardship, more despair, more death, more destruction than maybe any story in all of human history or any historical account in all of human history. But when we think of Noah and the Ark, we immediately think of pretty sunshiny, white white bearded dude on top of a boat with all the animals and the birds. And it's this picture of like happiness and hope, which it is a picture of hope, but it also comes with a lot of suffering and death and destruction. And, and every kid has like the coloring sheets and kids men programming and, and we've made the craft, we made the boat, we have this idea of what this boat looks like. And I don't know about you, but we got this toy for Christmas. My kid, I didn't get it. My kids got this toy for Christmas. It was like a 101 piece Noah set. It was ridiculous. Like the smallest little pieces and it was this really cool boat. And I was like, man, that's awesome. It looks so cool. My kids loved to play with it for like a day and then they forgot about it. But it was this cool toy, and I think we all have this toy. It's this childhood fixation, childhood fairy tale, but it's a real story. It's not just a fictional fairy tale. It's a real story, a real historical account that happened with a ton of pain and heartache and God's wrath and judgment. And so I want us to notice all the details when we go through the story. Like if this story was just fiction or just made up or just some Christian folklore that people passed down through like oral traditions, why would the Bible, why would Moses include such detail in this account of, of uh, iterating the story to the nation of Israel to preserve it for all time. Why would there be such detail around the ark and the dates and the, the location, all of it? And then in the books of Ezekiel, Isaiah, Chronicles, Matthew, Luke, 1 Peter and Hebrews, all mention Noah to bring more credibility to his existence and to this story of what happened with Noah and the ark in this time. And then even Jesus himself referenced Noah. Like he was asked about the second coming of Christ or, or the, you know, the final days or the judgment. And, 
And Jesus refers to just like it was in the days of Noah, so will it be when the son of man returns. And so he gives credibility to Noah. And so if Jesus says it, I put my money on him and I believe that Noah was a real guy and this is a real story and, and archeologists and scientists and fossils and reshaping the earth and we're, and we're unearthing and discovering things and archeological digs that are proving more and more and more that the possibility of this flood was actually a real historical event. And so I want to give us the adult version today. I want to try to dive in and, and re-add all the stuff that got stripped out that you and I probably immediately think of when we think of Noah and the ark. And so I want to talk about what we don't know like we did last week. There's some real big question marks and some, some gray, some uncertainty. We'll talk about what we do know. And then I also think that we're going to hone in on this is an historical event that I think is maybe more relevant now than it maybe ever has been. And Chris kind of mentioned that last week about, hey, kind of feels like the days of Noah with the perversion and the degradation of our culture, our society, our morals, our values. Truths are now lies and lies are being celebrated as truths. And the chaos just feels like we're living almost in kind of the days of Noah and the same kind of culture that he was in. And so Genesis 6, we'll start at verse 14. But if you missed last week, like I said, super weird. There was this angels and humans interaction. Uh, the wickedness of man had increased to a proportion that's never been seen before. Every thought, it said, of man was wicked and evil and perverted. There was violence everywhere. The heroes were worshipped or idolized. They were fallen people and God's creation in its intent and design, was almost unrecognizable, I would say. And it feels similar today, almost unrecognizable. How did we get to where we have gotten in today's culture? And it grieved God last week. We heard it grieved God. It broke his heart. This was never the way that it was supposed to be. And because of this, and God was incredibly patient, 1,600 years roughly, he had been patient and watching his creation, his prized creation through the genealogy all the way back to Adam and Eve, slowly and slowly become more perverse, more perverted, more degraded, more evil, more sinful, and more chaotic. And he's been patient, trying to call them back and sending messages and being super patient. And now he's like, Noah, you are the only righteous man left. And, and your family, your wife and your sons and their wives, there's eight people who are gonna be left and considered righteous. And Noah is kind of the leader of that. And everyone else had a wicked, which is wicked to the point of where God says, God says, hey, we're gonna need to do a redo. We're gonna start over. And no, I need you to build a boat. I need you to build it to these specs and this size and this way. And I'm gonna bring a flood. It's gonna flood the earth. And I'm going to destroy every living creature on the, on the, on the surface of the planet. But I'm gonna preserve you, preserve your life and preserve animal life and, and, and every kind of species, male and female, are gonna come into the boat with you. You're gonna bring food and you are going to be saved. And so here's the specifics of the boat. Genesis 6, verses 14 through 22. We pick up the story here. And God says to Moses, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you 
to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. So the first thing I want to do is I want to reshape our view of this, of this boat, right? I know the toy boat that my kids have and every coloring sheet and every craft. It's got this nice ergonomically designed hull. It's got like the, you know, the, the hull that would break the waves, got like the rudder and like, it's this really impressive boat structure. But the reality is I don't think Noah built a boat structure like we think a boat structure would have been built. It probably would have looked more like this. And I got a picture to show you. It would have been a barge. It literally would have been a big wood barge, like a huge rectangle. And the cubits, let me give you the cubits in feet. It would have been 450 feet long by 45 feet wide and 75 feet high, just a floating vessel. It wasn't, it wasn't designed to propel itself, wasn't designed to move, wasn't really designed to navigate any waters. It was simply a life vessel to preserve his life and all of the animal life that would enter that ark with him, 450 feet long, 45 feet wide, 75 feet high with three stories, three different levels. And so if you do the math, which you guys are in luck, I studied math for four years in college, wasting my time, but anyhow, and if anyone knows, if anyone knows me, I'm really terrible at math. So I use a calculator here, but if you look at each level of the floor, right? If you do the square footage, there would be roughly a hundred thousand square feet of floor space available. You could take 20 basketball courts and lay them end to end and they would fit on each level. So you could get 60 basketball courts, 20 on each level. You could pack 105 school buses on each level. 315 school buses stacked on top of each other, three high could fill the entire rectangle. There's roughly between 1.4, 1.5 million cubic feet of space inside of this barge. This thing is ginormous. It's humongous. And it's just meant to float. It's not meant to navigate like Magellan or Columbus. It's not going to sail the ocean blue. It's literally going to just float to preserve their lives. And then there's an argument that says, well, you know, there wasn't a boat built to this size until 1853. So we got we discredit it because there's no way he could have done that back then. But the reality is, is he didn't build a boat. He built a barge. He literally built a giant rectangle. It's very, he didn't have to bend wood, shape wood. He used the tools and things it had that God provided. And he built a massive floating rectangular barge. And it was so, so specific. God told him to use certain woods. And, and the cypress wood was wood that would actually float very buoyant, but also was very resilient to water. Like it wouldn't rot. It wouldn't decay over the length of time that it was going to be in the water or exposed to water. And, and God told him to put the pitch on the outside and the inside. Like we're gonna double layer this thing for, for you know, keep it secure, keep the structural integrity. I think really to keep the water out and keep the animals in. Like they're probably gonna be gnawing, scratching, trying to get out of this thing. So he, he built it so specific to double insulate, to make sure it was secure, to have structural integrity, to be able to persevere through how long it would be exposed to the water. And this kind of boat is way different than any kind of boat that I remember growing up in church or being told about or having the childhood narrative and the bearded man on a boat. It's very different. Makes it more plausible and likely that the boat was able to be built over a span of 120 years by Noah and his three sons. And I'll share in a moment about animals and how much we could fit in there to, to make it more plausible that he could actually fit the animals in there. But let's get back to the story. Genesis 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. 
Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, male and female, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, male and its mate. And also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came in to the ark with Noah. And God, just as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood walked. The floodwaters came on the earth, and in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on the day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of heaven were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. This is just like we picture, right? The animals come marching two by two, hurrah, hurrah. They, they go right into the ark and they're there and preserving life and the door gets shut and the rains come and there's this flood. But here's what we don't really know about the flood, right? There's some speculation of whether or not it was the first time it ever rained or not. Not clear, doesn't really say, it just says it rained. It could have rained before. And there's this idea of like, well, was it like, you know, in Genesis 1 and 2, it talked about this, the, the, the water above the earth. So there was kind of this, maybe this greenhouse effect that was existed. And that's why, you know, uh, human life could live longer, the oxygen concentration. And there's all those theories of plausibility of, and so was just that bubble of insulation of the waters above burst. And that was the rain and that was the gushing. And, but we know one thing, it came from above and from the earth. The springs came up and the rain came down and water was just everywhere. We know that for sure. And we also know that this is a, a geological and societal disaster far beyond anything we can probably comprehend or, or to a proportion that no one has ever seen before when it comes to water. And then there's Noah, he's in the boat and God shut the door and we can see the devastation that's taking place here. Think about the devastation you've seen with just floods in our own city even or floods in our state down south, or hurricanes along the coast, or tsunamis where we see the devastation of a tsunami that crashes into a place on our, on our globe. We can see the devastation, the death, the suffering, the pain, and the hurt. And you know what we don't do with those? Make them coloring pages for kids. We don't take that and, and make it a craft in Sunday school or in kids programming. We don't, we don't, we don't write songs about them to celebrate that. We don't. And so we can get a glimpse because the scale of magnitude of destruction that takes place in this flood versus a hurricane, a tsunami, or even local flooding in our state doesn't even compare. And so we see the loss of life and the disasters locally. Could you imagine the suffering on the scale of a, a global flood? And we don't sing about them. This is the largest human catastrophe to date, I think, I believe. Like nothing else compares to this moment in all of human history. And somehow we've left that part out when we get to the childhood narrative. And rightfully so, they're probably not ready. There's age appropriate content we should teach our kids, but we get so fixated that that's the story of Noah and the ark, even as adults, and we miss out on what this really implies for us today. You see, this is the largest display of God's wrath to date in all of humanity. And good news, he brought the rainbow and promised he'd never do it again in that way. But I believe there is a second coming. There is a judgment that will come, the final one, once and for all, where God's wrath will be displayed again. And just think about the horrific moments when those flood 
Waters are coming. People are just running for their lives. I can imagine people just climbing to top of trees that the more physically fit, getting their way to the top of mountains. And then you get to the top of the mountain and you realize you have no other options and you're going to suffer and drown, which is a horrific way to go. And Noah and his family are in the ark, probably imagining what's going on around them. Their neighbors, their friends, their coworkers, extended family members, their houses, their structures, their neighborhoods, their landscape, the geography, the the scenery, all of it just being absolutely leveled and destroyed. And because we were taught this as a child, we've stripped all the judgment and all God's wrath away, and it's just become a fun boat with all the pretty animals, a bearded white dude and a bird and a branch and a rainbow. And I love that we teach our kids this, and we absolutely should keep teaching our kids this at the age-appropriate levels. But we have to understand that this was a horrific event in all of human history. And so Moses is writing this and he's putting such detail around it because he's delivering this message to the nation of Israel. He's like, hey, I want to remind you who your God is. And like, he's a God, he's a just God. He's a righteous God. He cannot be where sin is. And he's been patient for 1600 years with his creation, with his people that he made. And they blew it and they drifted so far. And he was so patient with them. But eventually justice is deserved when there's sin And death is the payment for the sin because of our nature and the evil. And it went rampant. And he was so patient. He was patient. He was even more patient in 120 years because he provided a preacher of righteousness. Second Peter says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so he was there to share the news of God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, to reconcile people back into relationship with God. And he's building this mammoth structure that I'm sure is getting a lot of attention. So now he has the opportunity to say, this is why I'm doing it. And so people had the opportunity. God gave them 120 years while Noah and his sons built the ark for them to repent and turn from their ways. And the invitation to jump on the boat was there, I believe. But how many people showed up when the floodwaters rose? No one. Eight people, Noah and his seven relatives, his wife, three sons, and their wives were the only seven people to respond to the invitation. He was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years and nobody... That's how wicked and how much a culture wanted nothing to do with God. Feels similar to today, a little bit. Our culture wants nothing to do with God. His morals, his values, his his worldview, his ideologies, his lifestyles, what he's calling his creation to live. People run and flee and it's my truth, my wants, my happiness, my life. I'll do whatever I want. And it feels like they're just oppositional to God and his truth. This is a story full of judgment judgment and God's wrath. But this is also a story of hope and a story full of his grace, his patience, his willingness to, to persevere through. He could have did it earlier. He could have did it. He could have snapped his fingers. He could have did this a lot earlier. He was patient, giving everybody a chance, I believe, to repent and come back to him. And I think he provided a way for us to have redemption. This was an opportunity for redemption because think about it. If he hadn't have done this and we know where our society is today and we kind of get a glimpse of where their society was back then, what if there wasn't this restart? Could you imagine how society would have been functioning from that day, moving forward, farther drifting? And so it's an act of, of grace. It's an act of mercy. It's an act of salvation and redemption for you and I born today in this world to live with the freedoms and the liberties that we have. And so I don't know exactly how the flood came above or below. I'm not sure exactly God's motivation or why he did it in this way. He could have 
just snapped his fingers and started over completely. But he used Noah to preserve what he had already created to continue on with his humanity, with humanity that he designed in his prized creation, a chance to start over, chance for redemption and salvation for us today. And so let's talk about the animals, what we don't know about the animals, right? We know that the animals came to Noah, but did they come two by two? I don't know. Did they start showing up like days before and they're like building, they're building the boat and all of a sudden they're like, hey, these stripey things just showed up. So like, should we load them on now or should we wait? Like, I'm not sure. And we're not clear. We just know that they came to like God, you know, nudged the animals or, or, or sovereignly worked through the animals to bring them to Noah, the ones that God wanted on the boat. They came to Noah. Did they come by twos always? Did they show up randomly days before? We're not sure. But here's what we do know is God uses animals. He used a donkey, a very prominent figure in, in ushering in salvation in, into Jerusalem with his son, right? He's used birds to feed people. And here's the thing, when God uses animals, they listen, they obey. Like you don't have to whip the donkey to get the donkey on the boat. He's gonna get on the boat because God said, get on the boat. You and I are the only living creature that God created that we wanna fight and argue and say, no, I'm gonna do it my way. I know you said this, but I'm good. I'm gonna do it my way, my truth, my life, my happiness. And then when the floods come, when the tsunami comes, when the storm comes, we're the only ones that look like a donkey at that point. And we, if we would just surrender, if we would just know that this is God's best and his intent, and we would just listen and obey like the animals, probably would go better for us. And so the animals came, and then what happened when the animals got on the boat? Like how were little bunnies and tigers on the same boat, right? How was a carnivore and a bunny on the same boat when they on different floors? Different floors. I mean, if, if nature's taking over instinct, that tiger's crawling through or he's getting to that food, right? Maybe God put them in a hibernation. That's one theory. And I think that's probably the most logical to keep harmony and peace on this boat because they were on it for 340 to 370 days until the water was subsided and they were able to get on land and then release the animals out onto the land. So how do you do that unless you hibernate them? That's one theory. Do we know for sure? Not really. And then can you actually fit all kinds of animals, two of each kind, onto the boat? Yes, you can, in theory, because the average size of a land animal is roughly a sheep. And that's what they use with weight and size and dimensions. A land creature, the average size would be sheep. And so if you did the math, again, 1.5 million cubic feet, you could fit about 125,000 sheep if that's all you put into the ark. 125,000 sheep in this boat. And so then if you do the math and there's scientists and, and there's a, this is gonna be really hard to try to articulate and explain. Kind and species are different. If you look at, if you go Google today, you're gonna see there's like 8.7 million species of animals today, right? Now there's microevolution, different adaptations, right? But they all kind of have one genome or one kind that they come from. And scientists have agreed and there's been some speculation, but let's just go with a conservative or maybe a little bit of an aggressive number of 18,000 is what they've said. Kinds of animals that would have existed most likely in that time. So if, he, if Noah just takes two of those kinds of 18,000 land creatures and birds, you have 36,000 average size, some are smaller, some are bigger, of a sheep, you got plenty of room. You're only taking up a third of the space with animals. So the other two thirds is the food that you're going to need to last a whole entire year for you and the animals. It's plausible, right? It's plausible. And I think about dogs, right? 
dogs, there, I mean, how, how many, I don't even know how many breeds there are today. It's ridiculous. We're crossbreeding. We're like manufacturing dogs. It's, it's wild how many breeds there are. And so some experts and people have, have, have traced it back to where there's probably four to six breeds of dogs in Jesus's day. So if you say that that was consistent even back in Noah's day or maybe less, if you take a few of those, right, and over the thousands of years, Years through genetic and small micro adaptations, you can get a variety. And that's why we have 8.7 million different varieties or species of different genomes. It's very plausible. He could take two of the 18,000. And over the time, that's how we could get to where we are today. Very plausible. So that's animals. That's the best I got. Not sure exactly. Let's go to the people. Did you guys ever hear this? That Noah was made fun of? that he was like the outcast weirdo and mocked and ridiculed and spoken down on. doesn't say it in scripture. We don't have clarity if he was actually ridiculed or mocked or made fun of. And another thing that I thought was absolutely certain growing up was that people were banging on the door trying to get in. Once the water came, they were like, oh crap. And they started banging on. We don't see that in scripture either. It's like society and humanity already made their decision and wasn't nothing going to change their mind even when the floodwaters came. And think about it. When the floodwaters are coming, when the tsunami's hitting, they're running for their lives. They're not thinking, hey, where's that guy with that boat? They're just trying to survive. And so no one was there knocking on the door. He wasn't necessarily mocked or laughed at or made to look like the weirdo or the outcast. And where do we get that from? I think we get it from 2 Peter when it says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And then last week we talked about the culture and how crazy and evil and corrupt and violent it was. I would assume that a preacher of righteousness who doesn't believe or stand up or support what culture is doing, probably going to be an outcast. Probably not going to get invited to the party on the cul-de-sac at the corner because you got a 450 foot boat in your backyard thinking that's a weirdo. You're different. You're not like them. And so you're not going to be included. You're not going to be invited. And he might've been mocked. He might've been made fun of, or more plausibly, he might've been like a a local celebrity, right? The word could have gotten out and like, oh my gosh, you got to come see this thing. Like, look at this, what this guy's building and selling tickets and like funding the project and giving tours and like showing it off and having an opportunity to preach the message of salvation, reconciliation back to God. And he could have been like a local celebrity. And just because he might've been a local celebrity doesn't mean people are going to follow him or believe him. They don't buy into the story. There's just kind of a, a spectacle to go see. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that he was a preacher of righteousness and he probably had the opportunity to share why he was doing what he was doing. And nobody showed up and nobody took him up on his offer. So what we've learned about Noah is that he's a really good boat builder and he's a really lousy preacher. That's a joke. He was probably really good. But culture was just so far gone that they had wanted nothing to do with his message. He probably spent 120 years telling people why he's doing what he's doing. Not a single person lifts a log, cuts a tree, places a board and says, hey, I want to come with you. I'm in. No one except his family. But he does it. Even when he probably feels defeated and like, why? Like, like, why, why am I doing this? Why God? Why me? Why are you asking me? Why is nobody receiving this or taking my warning of the flood is coming? because God said so. And there's not a shred of evidence in scripture that points to that he actually reached somebody with that message, except his family. So maybe whatever his dreams were, whatever his plans were for his life, whatever he wanted to retire or have grandkids, 
totally blown up because God said, hey, for 120 years, this is gonna be your life. And no one's, and, and God, no, and no one's gonna support you, but stay faithful, stay obedient, do what I'm calling you to do. I promise you it'll go well for you. And at the end of it, I'm sure it's defeating to see that there's no fruit of it. So I don't know if he was mocked. I don't know if he's a local celebrity. I'm not sure, but here's what I do know. In a culture much like ours, who wants nothing to do with God, here is a man who heard God, knows God's truth, and is dedicating his entire life to it with incredible faith and incredible obedience and incredible perseverance for 170 years, or 120 years. Never once, at year seven, he's like, I'm already throwing a towel. Man, this is exhausting. I'm done. I'm over it. Year 30, he's like, hey, no one has helped me at all. This can't be real. Year 60, he's like, I'm halfway through this, and I can't even see the finish line. This project's never going to get done. He never squandered and never stopped. Continually was obedient, even in the face of incredible opposition from culture and in society. He was still obedient to what God said. And there was eight people on the boat. You see, because culture is hell-bent on doing it their own way. They want to do it their way, my way, my happiness. I am my own God. I am my own idol. And my happiness is my highest priority. And culture wants to self-indulge and satisfy all of those desires without any regard for God. And then when the tsunami hits, people running for their lives, trying to stay alive, the storms come. They're not asking where the boat is. They're just fighting for their life. And we have people in our world, in our society, in our cultures, in our families, in our circles, in our schools, in our businesses, in our workplaces that are drowning and are hurting. And you are there as a preacher of righteousness. You might be there as a light of sharing the gospel with them and they want nothing to do with you. And that's not your fault. And that doesn't mean you stop. That means you just know that it's not your job to save them. It's your job to present the opportunity like Noah did and the Holy Spirit will draw them to himself in his time. And I think the reason Noah continues on and never, never or perseveres is because he knows the end of the story. He's been promised by God. He knows what's coming. He knows who wins. We know who wins. We know the end of the story. We know who populates heaven. We know the end. We have victory in Jesus' name. And this story is all about God's grace. It's all about his redemption. It's a foreshadow of Jesus and what he's going to do for all of mankind once and for all, because God promised that he would not flood the earth and destroy the earth and humanity again. He would not do it. But guess what? History repeats itself. If you pay attention. And we feel like we're living in kind of a culture the same as in Noah's age to where Jesus or God himself said, hey, wrath and judgment need to happen again, but I won't punish them anymore. I'll punish myself. I will sacrifice my life, myself this time. And once and for all, the final sacrifice was made so that we could all be forgiven. The free gift of grace is available through Christ once and for all. And there will be a reckoning, a judgment day, God's wrath again on this earth in the second coming of Christ. And so there's a lot we don't know about the flood. Where'd it come from? Above or below the animals, two by two, 18,000 kinds, 36,000. The people, were they banging? Were they mocking them? Was he a celebrity? We're not sure. But here's what we do know. And here's what I want you to know about this story. Is that we all come back, we always come back to obedience. Following Jesus is about having enough faith to believe him, having enough faith to do what he's calling you to do. 
Even when it's hard, even when it's unpopular, even when culture and society is, feel like they're going to hell in a handbag, like they're just, they're on their way doing their own thing, worshiping, their, worshiping themselves and their flesh and their desires, and you're sitting there stuck like, I want to fit in, I want to be accepted, I want to be social, I want to have friends, and it feels so lonely to stand up for what I believe is right, and you feel like you're on an island. I'm sure Noah felt the same exact way, but obedience of doing the right thing, I promise you, will work out better for you in the end. There's a promise from God. We know the end of the story. We know who wins. And so there's six things I want to go over. Three things about what, what obedience will do. Godly obedience will set you apart from the crowd. You will be set apart from the crowd. And if you're not set apart from the crowd, I would say you need to check yourself. Because we, we do not conform to the patterns of this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. We will live differently because God has spoken and said it in his word or directly to me for my will, my life of what he's calling me to do. And I will look different. We will look different. We might look like weirdos. We might look like, you know, crazy conspiracy theorists, weirdos. And that's okay because we're living inside the will of God of what he's commanded. You will look different. You'll be set apart from the crowd. And that's why, and let me talk to the parents for a second. That's why we don't let our kids, hopefully as Christian parents, have unfiltered access on social media, on their mobile phone. And I know there's a great pressure to conform to give your, your, your 10 year old, your eight year old a cell phone and have YouTube and unfiltered access to where they can be indoctrinated or polluted with different ideologies that, that will shape their worldview to not be God's worldview. And we have a responsibility and I'm feeling this burden. I know I got a four-year-old, a two-year-old and a two-month-old, but it's gonna come quicker than I want it to. School's coming. What do I do? Do I send them to private, Christian, public? How do I navigate this? What's right? What's, what's good for my kids? And, and what we wanna be set apart and they may not get invited to all the birthday parties and they may, they may not have all the friends and they may be excluded a lot of times because they're not like the rest of the world and that's okay. We should be set apart. And parents, you lead by example, just like Noah. They followed Noah because he was a man of integrity following God and he was considered righteous in God's eyes. And I think that's why his wife, because think about, think about it. God didn't speak to Noah's wife and say, hey, this is what I want you to do. God didn't speak to his three sons and say, hey, this is what I want you to do. And then there's three daughter-in-laws that God didn't speak to. They all, seven of them followed Noah because of his example, his life. And they knew, yeah, that this is real. He's authentic, he's genuine, he's gonna do this, he's gonna follow God, even though it's, he's being set apart, maybe mocked, ridiculed, and the outcast weirdo. You should be set apart from the crowd. And that's my second point is godly obedience will encourage others to follow. And I just kind of foreshadowed that. Those seven people followed Noah. And parents, more than anything, you are the most influential person in your kid's life, period. And when you're absent in that, there's a void. Someone else will fill it and be influential in their life. And so you, more than anything, more than coming to Sunday church and putting them in kids' men or sending them to youth group, how you live your life, how you conduct your family and your relationships and your work, your occupation, how you forgive, how you love, how you sacrifice, how you emulate and radiate Jesus is more important than anything else you can do for your kids. And you should be set apart from the world. They should see that. You should have conversations with them. Hey, I know you're going to go to prom, homecoming, and there's going to be a lot of this and, you know, dresses and outfits and all that. There's going to be after parties, but, you know, like, we're different, right? Yeah, I know. I know it's hard. I know you want to fit in, but we're different. 
We gotta have purity in this. This is what God's calling us to. And they will follow you if you do it first. Lead by example. And you will encourage others to follow with incredible obedience and incredible faith. You'll encourage others to follow. And it might not be a lot of people, maybe a few, and that's okay. And if you're a parent, your kids are the ones that you want to follow you. You want to be the most influential person and you're set up to be the most influential person in your kid's life. And the final thing that godly obedience will do is bring salvation to others. It'll bring salvation. Now I know in the story of Noah, there were really, we didn't really see any fruit of that, but there were seven people who I believe were, were able to find reconciliation to God. And maybe seven's your number. Maybe that's all that God will use you for and that is enough. And so we don't have to feel like we got to go save the world. Yes, we should be outward. Yes, we should share our faith. Yes, we should pursue people and, and invite them into relationship with Jesus. But it's not our job to save people. It's our job to invite them into a relationship with an opportunity. And the Holy Spirit draws them to himself. And you living out with incredible faith and incredible obedience, doing the hard thing, doing what's opposite of culture, having integrity before the Lord and doing what he says to do will bring salvation. I know it will to other people because it's contagious. People will be drawn to that light. When there's so much darkness and so much chaos and all these lies are being pushed as truth and we don't know what's up and what's down, it's a refreshing thing when you witness somebody authentic and genuine in their faith, living it out. It's magnetic a little bit. It's contagious. And if enough people do that together, we get to be a light on a hill. And that's exactly what the church is supposed to do. All of us individually in our personal lives doing it, coming together corporately with unified vision and mission of being a light to our community, we can fight the darkness right here together and we can bring salvation with godly obedience. Now, godly obedience can get three things. It can get very uncomfortable. It can get hard. Doing the right thing over and over and over again can get hard, especially when culture doesn't celebrate, support, or affirm, or you feel like it's doing any benefit can get uncomfortable. Second thing that obedience can get is smelly. I know that's not a great word, but think about the ark. That is a cesspool of feces, man. Like I don't want to be on that boat for 350 days, but those animals, could you imagine, unless they were sleeping the whole time in hibernation, that again, I'm voting that theory. If I was Noah, I hope that that would be the way it would happen. Smelly, uncomfortable, Cooped up. You thought your COVID quarantine people were bad. Could you imagine being cooped up for a year with these animals and persevering through that because God said so and God told you to? It's going to stink sometimes to be a Christian. It's going to be hard sometimes. It's going to be uncomfortable. But I promise you that if he says it in his word and he's calling you to it, it may be temporarily difficult and temporarily stink, but I promise you the benefit will outweigh the discipline in the moment. And the final thing is godly obedience can get incredibly painful. Forgiving people who've deeply hurt you is painful. It's hard, but it's what we got to do as Christ followers. Reconciling relationships is at the heart of God. And so we are, are called to go and do that. And that can be incredibly painful. Parenting teenagers, I'm not there yet, <laughs> can be incredibly painful when you're trying to keep them morally and, and Christian worldview and values centered. It can be incredibly painful. And so following Christ is never easy. And, and Jesus even said himself, hey, if the, word, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. And so are we set apart from the world? Are we facing a little bit of 
you know, not per- persecution is too strong of a word, but a little bit of like people aren't interested in us. We're just different. We're set apart. We live differently. And that can be incredibly painful for some of us. And now I have another chapter and a half I was supposed to go over, but I don't want to keep you for two hours. But we'll get to, let me summarize real quick. There was the floodwaters going to recede after this obedience and floodwaters recede. And then there's this dove and this olive branch to then confirm that there's dry land and they can begin to, you know, open up the ark and, or find some land and open up the ark and, and repopulate the earth. And somehow we've taken this symbol of this olive branch as like a symbol of hope when one year earlier, the horrific just happened. And then when they get off the boat, there's this moment where Noah's going to uh, sacrifice an animal that's almost extinct because he only brought seven of the clean. There's not very many left, but it's an act of obedience and faith of trusting. Say, God, I'm going to sacrifice this animal knowing that you are going to provide. I trust you with everything, every part of my life, every part of my being, nothing I'm withholding from you, another incredible act of obedience and faith and trust of what he's going to do. Noah was not perfect. We'll see that he's going to get drunk and be naked. It's going to be weird. Come back next week, right? He's not a perfect person, but he was considered righteous in God's eyes because of his obedience. And so you and I have a choice today. What will we do with our life? Every day waking up, will we follow him? Will we trust his word, his truth, what he says um, sovereignly in his Bible, in his word, and then independently with his call on my life? What is he calling us to do? Will we step out by faith and trust him enough to do what he says? Because that's faith. And you don't need more faith. You need more obedience. We need to do what he says. And it'll set us apart. It will be a light and a refreshment of hope to other people, bringing them to salvation, even though it's uncomfortable and it stinks and it can be painful. I promise you it is worth it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for your redemption. I thank you for your incredible grace and patience with humanity and society. That we're so wicked and evil and corrupt and gosh, it feels like I don't know what is true and what, what to believe. And it's so hard to, feels like it's so hard to be a Christian today. And so Father, I pray by the Holy Spirit, you would just unite Christians all over the world to stand up and be a light more now than ever. Father, that we could fight against the evil and the tyranny and the destruction and the pain and the death and the hurt in a way in which we could just be a symbol of hope that people are drawn to right here in Wheeling even. And God, help us to have more faith. Help us to have more obedience. Help us to know what you've said and what you're calling us to. And we would give every single part of our life and we would withhold nothing from you. And in return, you'd bless us and you'd guide us and you'd help us become everything we were created to become. And I pray in Jesus. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God. And we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.